0: Welcome to New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Amelia Jones about In Between Subjects, a critical genealogy of queer performance, which was published by Routledge in 2021. In Between Subjects is a study of the connected ideas of queer and gender performance, or performativity over the past several decades, providing an ambitious history and crucial examination of these concepts while questioning their very basis. The book traces how and why queer and performativity seem to belong together in so many discussions around identity, popular modes of gender display and performance art. Drawing on art history and performance studies, but also on feminist queer and sexuality studies, and both colonial, indigenous, and critical race theoretical frameworks, it seeks to denaturalize these assumptions by questioning the U.S. centrism and white dominance of discourses around queer performance or performativity. Dr. Amelia Jones is Robert A. Day Professor and Vice Dean of Academics and Research in Roski School of Art and Design at the University of Southern California. Her recent publications include Seeing Differently, A History and Theory of Identification and the Visual Arts, and Otherwise, Imagining Queer Feminist Art Histories, co-edited with Erin Silver. The catalog, Queer Communion, Ron Athey, which she co-edited with Andy Campbell, and which accompanies a retrospective of Athey's work at Participant Inc in New York City and ICA in Los Angeles was listed among the best art books of 2020, in the New York Times. Amelia, welcome to New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies.
2: Thank you. I'm super happy to be
0: here. I'd like to begin by asking the authors to share with us their book's origin story. So tell us, how did this book come about?
2: Yeah, I talk about this a little bit, actually, in the introductory parts of the book. It's I'm, I've always thought about the way dominant discourses come into being. And uh, thankfully, kind of came of age as a scholar when post-structuralism was a very big thing in graduate school. So the model of Foucault and the genealogy was really helpful as I started to read more and more queer theory in the 90s and started to be more aware of how narrow those discourses were. Uh, Then I moved to England in 2003. And of course, when you have a distance from a discourse, from the centers of where it uh, is dominant, that affords an amazing opportunity to kind of crystallize that critical point of view. So In England, it was very clear that, for example, queer theory was perceived as a North American phenomenon. So that really, as I said, helped crystallize a framework where I could look at all these texts that had become canonical, really, in critical thinking around gender and sexuality. And I could see how specific they were to not just North America, but especially the United States and even more narrowly, uh, mostly a white point of view based in urban areas to get very specific. So that was really a kind of almost instantaneous um, shift in framework that then pushed me forward. I was working on the book Seeing Differently at the time, which is a history and theory of identity in relation to the visual arts. And so this was kind of a Side interest that was complementary to that, which I then ended up developing further as I finished seeing differently.
0: Yeah, I, I really appreciate uh, your approach here. I am Brazilian, but I did all my grad studies in the U.S., and that's when I became where I became familiar with queer studies and queer theory. So, s- since uh, for the past few years, since I left uh, the U.S., have been thinking about uh, those uh, uh, issues that you uh, just discussed and asked you point out in the book. So it was really uh, interesting for me to read it. But I'd like to imagine this podcast not only as something that's for folks who are initiated in the topics that we discuss here, but also to a broader audience who is interested in learning a bit more about this. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to, to begin by breaking down the book's title and defining some of the concepts and ideas that it contains. So and I know I'm gonna ask you for something that's you know that's a complex theme that we could do a whole episode on, but could you give us sort of a, a brief introduction to anybody who's not familiar with these discussions? What would be the difference between performance, performativity and performative?
2: Oh yes, that's very complicated. <laughs> um and as you know, I have a whole chapter called performativity. So yes. I mean, really perf- it's there are no fixed definitions of any of these terms. They're constantly changing and uh being debated. Performance is a term that's been in the English language, you know, since the early modern period it applies to anything from the obvious kind of theatrical performance that is a very standard high art affair. But in the mid 20th century, there started to be a join between certain anthropological ideas about performance and the more Western kind of theatrical ideas. And so by the 1970s, you have kind of a coalescing idea that performance, in the words of one of the people who founded performance studies, Richard Schechner, that, you know, it's any kind of twice behaved behavior. In other words, it's not just any human movement or gesture, but it's something that is done more than once with an eye towards having an audience. Um, there are lots of other definitions, but that's a very dominant definition because the performance studies discipline has been so influential. Uh, performativity and performative. So in the 1950s, um, and again, it's I, I talk in the book about how it's not a coincidence that these things are coalescing at the same time. That's kind of the point of the book is to show the interconnections. In the 50s, the um, British analytic philosopher who worked on linguistics, J.L. Austin, performed a series of lectures at Harvard in which he invented the term performative. So it was a very specific linguistic term that had to do with a phrase or statement that did what it said. So in other words, the most obvious example, which is infamous and often criticized, is Austin saying, you know, if if a judge has the legal right to proclaim a, a marriage legally sound, when the judge stands in front of the two people and says, I pronounce you um, husband and wife, that is a performative because it's literally legalizing a marriage. So it's doing what it's saying. So it has a very narrow definition in, in Austin's work, but it, It it happens around the same time that you also have ideas about social performance and social interactivity in the social sciences and so it kind of starts to dovetail with a much broader idea of how humans identify ourselves in social settings and how we interrelate with other people Um, and so by the uh, 70s and 80s you find people starting to think about identity as a process. And this comes out of really the social sciences, but it's taken up by someone like Judith Butler, who then famously puts it together with this idea of the performative. But actually, that was around uh, 1988, 1990. But also in literary theory, Eve Sedgwick is more assertively kind of combining the idea of performativity with a specific concept of queer. So that's kind of the epic moment that the book circles around.
0: Yes, well, that brings me, since you, you already mentioned these uh, canonical, uh, these authors who will write these canonical texts in queer theory, um, let's focus a bit on, on the term queer, because as you, as you know, as you show here, it means different things to different people in different times and places. So I'd like you to tell us what does it mean in the context of your book, and what makes a queer performance
2: queer? Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, again, it's an unfixed term, so the book really is tracing the complexities of these terms. It's not trying to pin them down. It's kind of the whole point of Foucault's idea of genealogy, but queer is a word that's used even in the early 20th century it gets attached to people perceived as homosexual um so you can find actually in the records of the los angeles police department them using the word queer in a pejorative way to talk about homosexual bathhouses and you know the raids that they were doing to arrest homosexuals so that valence of the word comes into being, you know, around the same time, actually, if maybe slightly after the word homosexual becomes a word in the English language that's applied to people who are gay. Um, But it's in the mid to late 20th century that the term starts to be kind of reversed by people who self-identify as gay or lesbian, and use it in a more and more positive way. By the time you get to the late 80s, early 90s, this is the moment where the development of queer theory itself comes into being, and that's where the word becomes extremely common in academic discourse and debates around sexuality. Um, Teresa de Lauretis famously ran a uh, conference in which she crystallized that concept of queer theory around uh, 1990, 1991. So again, entirely North American. And the super interesting thing about queer theory is that it really was dominated by women, um, women who identified themselves as queer. So Teresa De La Redis, Judith Butler, Eve Sedgwick, but the the histories of gay culture are dominated by this kind of work of white gay men. So all of them are white, most of them are academics. Um, but you have this very interesting kind of gender divide within those histories. Um, and the trans discourse, is woven throughout all of these discussions. Sometimes it gets conflated with queer, sometimes it gets distinguished. And of course, in the present moment, I think it's quite distinct and quite particular.
0: Yeah, but uh, as you, I think you mentioned here that there are no quintessentially queer performances. So could you uh, tell us uh, about the performances that you analyze here and what, what makes, what may you include them in a genealogy of queer performances?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the complicated question is if, if you wanted to define a performance as inherently queer, in a sense, you would be completely betraying both the concept of queer and the concept of performative, because the idea of inherency fixes meaning and value. So the trick is to try to understand how something is experienced as a queer performance or gets defined that way historically. So that's kind of what I do throughout the book as I interrupt the more academic analysis of this genealogy with my very particular, extremely partial interpretations of works that I experienced as queer performances and that I'm trying to convince you as a reader, have a queer valence, but only relationally in terms of my interpretation. So it's important to me that that I'm not it doesn't come across as me kind of saying this is a queer performance. So I never say that. I just drop the interpretations into the text with illustrations just to give a sense of uh, what the work is about. And the illustrations are, in some of the cases, it's are, are my own photographs. So now, that that's a whole other set of interesting questions. Now that we all carry smartphones around, as we experience performances, we can not just interact with them relationally, but actually produce our own documentation.
0: Yes. Could you talk a bit more about the, the structure of your book? You were, you were sort of alluding to that. You provide a genealogy while questioning that genealogy, but there's also this uh, autoethnographic component your own your interventions your thoughts. So tell us a bit about that and and how did you decide and why did you decide to write the book this way?
2: Yeah, so I decided to write the book with these interruptions in the text which are self-reflexive precisely because I didn't want to weave the interpretations of the work into the academic text, because that would give the impression that I'm asserting them as part of this kind of serious academic genealogy. So I want them to read as interruptions, and for the reader to feel this kind of break or rupture. Um, The autoethnographic is something that um, very clearly for me comes out of feminism and my deep commitment to feminist theory and practice you know from the 70s with the rise of the feminist art movement in the United States and Britain, there was there were a lot of debates about, of course, the phrase being the personal is political that part of the problem with patriarchy or the way that patriarchy mobilized its power was to silence the personal and to define any kind of self-assertion as feminine or female and to marginalize it from the rational discourse of enlightenment philosophy, which of course was entirely articulated by white men. So it, it kind of echoes all the way back to that set of theorizations. So I think the best example for me of the, the, what I'm trying to do with the auto ethnography is the relationality chapter where I dig deeply into the rise of these social sciences concepts of social performance and what um, social psychologists call interpersonal relations or interactivity. And so I was reading the classic performance studies sociological texts by Irving Goffman, but my own father was a social psychologist. And so my awareness of terms like interpersonal perception really, it's kind of like at the dinner table when I was a young person, I would have heard my father using those terms. He liked to talk about his work at the dinner table. So then I started to pick up some of his books, which I have around. And one of the first books I picked up on interpersonal perception started with an anecdote about his daughter, Amy, which was what I was called as a young person, and described an experience, an interpersonal experience I had when I first went to university. So it was like a brain exploding moment when I realized, oh my gosh, this really is totally about me that all, you know, all scholarship in a way is a recursive loop back to the author, no matter how kind of um, distanced or objective we pretend to be, we're always performing knowledge in relation to our own experiences. And so that, is one of the ruptures where I kind of present this moment of recognizing or remembering, really, because, of course, I had already read that book long ago. I had just forgotten about it. Um, So it's that moment of recognition of how much all of these arguments and all of these scholarly interests I have come from my experiences as a child growing up in the 60s, when these social sciences discourses were not only quite popularly known, even in kind of magazines like Life magazine, but they were actually being discussed at the dinner table as I was growing up. So, you know, it's part of trying to argue that history, historical context is not just some kind of shell that we describe as causing cultural works to occur or ideas to arise, but that that context is lived. And so just like we talk about, or I talk about performance taking on value through these interactive relational interpretations, in the same way, history and culture are, you know, part of those circuits of value and meaning that are lived and embodied and you could say are performative.
0: Exactly. And well, that brings me to something that I I was really interested in reading your book. As part of these interventions, you analyze, you discuss, you problematize even your positionality throughout the book. So could you talk a little bit about that? How do you position yourself here in relation to the themes, the people, the performances that you are analyzing?
2: Yeah, I mean, as a as a curious person, really, is the number one thing of, of kind of all of these performances that I write about, the ones that I personally experienced, um, I experienced already as I was thinking of this book, but of course, the work actually pushed the book forward. So in other words, I'm, it's very important to me because I was trained in the very traditional field of art history that often acts as if an artwork is there to be excavated with its truth revealed by the art historian, Um, that's anathema to me. So the kind of self-reflexivity is about saying, no, actually watching these works gave me the idea of the book, like that I'm not placing meaning on top of them, I'm suggesting that this is my experience of the work, and my experience of the work then helped me develop the ideas in this book. So that's a kind of overarching aspect of my scholarship that is really important to me, that yes, I'm totally invested in my own quote-unquote knowledge, but... I'm also aware that my whatever my knowledge is, is constantly being shaped by the works that I'm seeing, the people that I'm talking to, um, the books I'm reading, etc. So that's an overarching issue with all of my work. But it also, I'm allowed to, or I'm, I'm, able to see the situation in that way because I've been engaged with works that are relational and because I've read a lot of philosophy and theory that also gives models for reading in that way. Um, so again, it goes back to my kind of having come of age within these complicated contexts that that do have something to do with rights and power and all the kind of larger political movements that have affected me throughout my life. So I also talk a lot in the book about how the rights movements from a U.S. point of view, because that's what we call, for example, the rise of the civil rights movement, um, and the post-colonial and other movements in Europe, that you know, these movements have everything to do with the development of alternative modes of expression, such as performance art, that they're not just incidentally coming into being at the same time. So again, I'm trying to de-hierarchize the cause and effect of the way we tend to think about history when we write about culture.
0: Continuing on this, this topic... You mentioned here that the book was transformed right by your field work but by your experience living in New Zealand living and working and researching in New Zealand. Could you talk a little bit more about a bit about that experience and how did it inform the book? I was really uh, curious about your your discussion of your potential role as an appropriator or even as a colonizer of the performance culture that you discuss in this book as many of us who are investigating, who are writing about communities we do not belong to, uh, that, that made me reflect a lot about my own uh, position. So would you mind talking a bit about those reflections that you make here?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, I started by talking about moving to England. Um, after England, I lived in Canada, and I made the cardinal error that anglophones from the united states make of thinking quebec was just like the united states (laughs) so i moved to montreal and i had my mind blown by how different the culture is from anglophone north american culture and so once again i was kind of othered by this the culture i lived in but at the same time i'm a white privileged anglophone north american so you know it's that funny sense of like i know i represent in some ways the dominant culture that francophones in quebec are fighting against but at the same time i feel totally disempowered because they have this amazing culture and even though i kind of speak french i can't i can't experience it fully. So then I moved back to the States and then I got a Fulbright to go to New Zealand. And and that's a very odd story because the obvious question would be, how could you justify that you need to go to New Zealand to write a book on queer performance, <laughs> uh, which is a good question. And I phrased it to the Fulbright when I was writing the grant proposal, precisely that that the book came into being through these moments of, of decentering that enabled me to see more clearly the limitations of queer and performance theory. And so that I had done quite a bit of research on New Zealand because my partner is a white person from New Zealand, otherwise known as a Pakiha. So I had a sense that it would be a really interesting context because Of all the colonized parts of the world, New Zealand might be one of the most um, dominated by indigenous thinking and politics. So the Maori in New Zealand never gave up, they never ceded their sovereignty to the British crown. They, of course, it was their land was taken, and they were constantly mistreated and marginalized. But legally speaking, um, they have a treaty with the British Crown that gives them sovereignty, and they've really, especially in the post World War II period, they've been able to reclaim a lot of political power and even land. So. I was super interested in that particular form of a Anglophone, kind of, again, part of the Commonwealth, kind of British-dominant culture, but with a very, very vibrant and visible Indigenous culture. And indeed, when I got there, um, that was absolutely the case, and it was just super exciting. I just happened to arrive in the middle of um, Pride Week and uh, immediately immerse myself And very, very recently, groups like New Zealand or Auckland Pride have ceded authority to um, Maori and Pacifica groups so that Pride Week, for example, is much more dominated by Maori and Pacifica creators and thinkers. So it was very exciting to see that and to see what happens. One of the things that I was concerned about was the obvious problem of coming as a North American with my you know, deeply embedded concepts of gender and sexuality and queer theory and not just imposing those. So it was a constant battle for me with myself kind of trying to be as open as I could and listen as much as I could and watch as much work as I could um, and try to... Um, accept and work from my sense of disorientation and destabilization, which was really strong. I mean, I felt really, again, kind of othered by this amazing um, culture that's going on there. So it was a very, very different experience from Quebec or Manchester, England, uh, in the sense that I knew I wasn't living there long term, um, but At the same time, I have a very strong personal connection through my partner whose family is there. So it was really, really powerful and ended up kind of dominating all of my thinking throughout the book. But the way that I dealt with it in the book is that I just more and more kind of moved towards the integration in the last 25 years of post-colonial, decolonial, and critical race theory with performance and queer theory, which is appropriate because the that whole discourse really has become dominated by the brilliant work being done in those other areas. So it was a great way of kind of just segueing to um, more and more consciousness of race, indigeneity, et cetera, as... In, as Really central to understanding queer performance.
0: Yes. So uh, you were just explaining that, but I would like to to uh, elaborate on this a little bit more, right? This is a critical genealogy that questions the U.S. centrism, the English hegemony, and the white dominance of discourses around queer performance or performativity. Could you talk a little bit more about this initial domain of whiteness in some of the early? queer theory, as you do here in the book, but also mention some of the works that defy that.
2: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting for me is that I was lucky enough to work on this manuscript for a while um, with Tavia Nyong'o and Josh Chambers-Letson, who are friends of mine, but also really powerful thinkers in performance studies and critical race theory and the most influential debates i had were with tavia who kept saying to me well yeah this is a genealogy but you're just you're reinforcing the white genealogy by putting that at the center of the book and i kept saying but that is the dominant genealogy so i'm examining it and putting pressure on it but it wouldn't be accurate to you know argue that there was another genealogy, but he was really persistent and he kept pointing out that all along since the 1960s, there have been, I mean, in his case, he was citing a lot of African American writers and thinkers and performers who were doing work that you know, arguably was making some of the same points and opening some of the same doors. So a person he's been thinking a lot about is Samuel Delaney, who's a black queer science fiction writer, but who also, um, in Tavia's argument, has presented something that we could call queer theory, even though he didn't use those words. So I became really aware that in a way my limitation is that i couldn't experience this alternative genealogy i could i could research it and maybe put it alongside the white dominant one so i became more and more aware of you know my inability to escape my white privilege and then the book again being in new zealand was was hugely transformative because New Zealand is a place where post-colonial and decolonial arguments are talked about every day uh, across cities like Auckland it's literally something that is in daily conversation and i was so blown away by that because americans almost never talk about you know white people here as participating in the colonization of this country Um, We are taught, actually, we're brainwashed. Um, I was brainwashed as a child into this uh, American ideology that we we had freed ourselves from the colonization by England. And so, in a sense, we had nothing to do with colonization after we won the Revolutionary War. (laughs) And so, Being in New Zealand and having all these conversations where um, Pakeha and Maori and Pacifica people were constantly talking about, well, what do we do with the fact that, you know, the white people aren't going to leave now, but we still want our land back and we want our culture back. And like really, mostly really healthy conversations there. And it made me suddenly think about my own life and my family and the history of the United States differently. And so I ended up writing an entirely unexpected chapter called Other. And really, I'm talking about myself as other because I had to think about my own family history and the fact that not only do i did i have um four great grandparents on my father's side who were missionaries in india which is a classic you know extension of colonialism but i found out through my sister's genealogical work that we have one ancestor who goes all the way back to the 17th century who's roger williams who of course i had to realize was a colonist um and who actually founded rhode island and supposedly bought the land from the Narragansett tribe to do so. So he was very liberal for the time and and actually respected the Narragansett tribes, but nonetheless was a colonizer. So all of those things enabled me to then dig into the assumptions behind dominant queer theory and to kind of reframe it. So by the end of the book, the last chapter is called Trans and it interweaves trans discourse with um, the performances I was seeing, especially by the group FAFSWAG, Swag, which is a group of Maori and Pacifica performers who mostly identify as queer and trans. So, but again, what does that mean? Because those are English North American terms. So it's kind of a negotiation of those impossible joinings that have resulted from migration and colonialism.
0: Speaking of that chapter, this is yet another term that means different things to different people at different times and places. So how do you use the term trans here? And uh, could you talk a bit about this discussion you have that I found really interesting on how this trans theory, but also embodied experiences, complicate, sometimes clash with, but also enrich feminist queer theory?
2: Yeah, very, very complicated. So there's a lots of different points of view, obviously, among people who identify as trans. there, I mean, to oversimplify vastly, there are two extremes. There's the, in the U.S. context, Caitlyn Jenner, um, who was Bruce Jenner and then transitioned very publicly on television over the last decade and, and is... A self-proclaimed, you know, essentialist. So she will say things like I was always intended to be an authentic woman. So there's a real desire to align with binary gender to see uh womanness or femininity as a kind of essentialist thing. And the other extreme would be much closer to high queer theory where you have a lot of trans people, especially younger generation people, who are claiming and experiencing themselves as gender fluid, gender non-conforming, um, and, and really just they're doing away with any sense of binary gender. And they definitely, um, I have a lot of trans friends and, so, and also students and Etc. And it's definitely the case that they, they just don't even understand why you would binarize gender because they don't experience themselves that way. So that's a very exciting way to kind of, I suppose, in some ways, it extends certain concepts from queer theory that all along were dependent on trans people who have always been there, um, but were not always acknowledged in what they were offering to queer communities. And, of course, to feminism. So one of the issues with feminism is there are some feminists who are very negative about trans people and trans theory, seeing it as kind of opportunistic, um, as male-dominated in a strange way. Um, So, you know, most famously Janice Raymond's Wrote screeds about how trans women were just kind of men in disguise who were trying to take over and once again you know betray the feminist cause so that's a very unfortunate um it's a very, very minor part of feminist theory, but it's very visible and it's been it's been very damaging to the sense among trans people that, uh, you know, they're welcome and have a space in these discourses.
0: So I couldn't uh, end this uh, conversation without asking about something I'm very interested and invested in. Um, So it's a subject of my own uh, war investigation now. So could you talk a bit about uh, drag queens, drag kings, the, the role of drag in this genealogy And has that role changed over time, especially now with this commodification or mainstreaming of drag, which you acknowledge here? And I was interested in your take on that old debate, right, over whether drag queens are gender revolutionaries or gender conservative.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, so there is a whole chapter called theatricality, which deals directly with that. But it also weaves throughout the book because... Eventually, when you've read like tons of queer theory, you start to see, especially in the work of someone like Judith Butler, the force of certain examples of drag performance in their overall concept of queer, actually, but also of performance. So I started to really dig into that and see that you know, Judith Butler's famous 1988 argument, which gets worked into her book, Gender Trouble in 1990, of gender as a performance, which was so mobilizing for so many people in the, um, in the 90s. She writes another book in 1993 called Bodies That Matter, where she's answering some of the criticisms about gender trouble And she's distancing herself from a tendency to interpret her as having said that one could just decide to, you know, willfully undermine normative gender by whatever, drag performance or taking on other attributes. And so she's adamant that this isn't about free will or just deciding to do that. She never is able to resolve um, what exactly is happening because of the difficult question of agency. So, you know, if we have no free will to, to perform gender in any way we want, then what do we have? Like, where does the impetus, for example, in the film Paris is Burning, uh, Jenny Livingston's film from 1992, which provides the locus for butler taking on this argument in bodies that matter that becomes kind of the ideal example for butler and for a lot of people because the film narrates voguing and and drag performance within an of color communities in new york city so it offers a very clear example of how certain communities would reach for this kind of celebratory self-presentation as a way of, well, not intentionally to undermine norms because, you know, I don't think they were concerned with that necessarily, um, but that it effectively does undermine norms. So that example kind of haunts all of these discussions. So drag really is kind of central to not only mainstream conceptions of queer culture, but also uh internal debates within academia. Until you know, until the point, as you pointed out, where you get to the twentieth 21st century and you get mainstream television like RuPaul's Drag Race or the TV show Pose, and Pose is building on paris is Burning, and Jenny Livingston is even a consultant. So you know, you're kind of popularizing drag in a way that, um, is very compromising to the concept of it as subverting gender or subverting some norm, which Butler was arguing in the early nineties. So it is, it, it haunts queer theory and it's certainly, uh, this nexus of queer and performance or queer theory and performance theory is definitely drag as a huge part of those discussions.
0: Yeah. And um, are you working on any new projects that you wouldn't mind sharing with us?
2: Yeah, well, I have a show uh, you mentioned briefly in the bio, um, Queer Communion Ron Acie. The show I curated is actually still up at the ICA LA, and so that's a lit- you know <laughs> a very literal example of my thinking around queer performance. It's a show of the creative life and performative modes of the artist Ron Athey. Um So it you know, builds on an archive, but also on my personal experiences of having seen him perform many times and on my personal friendship with him. And it's structured around the concept of queer community. Um, I'm also working on a book of manifestos about the structural racism of the art world, broadly speaking. So including museums and galleries, but also art history and all of the discourses around the visual arts.
0: Can we access that? Uh, your, your the work that you, you said it's still uh, being performed or is it still being showed? Can we access it
2: virtually? The Ron Acy Show? Yes. Um, it's not really available virtually, but you can go on the ICA LA website and certainly see installation shots. And very much hoping that the show will travel to uh, the UK, um, where people have are very excited about Ron's work, and there's a broad audience for it.
0: I hope I, I get to see it sometime. And I'm looking forward to your uh, next book. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And to the folks listening to us, thank you for tuning in to another episode of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke with Dr. Amelia Jones about her new book, In Between Subjects, A Critical Genealogy of Queer Performance, which was published by Routledge in 2021. I'm Isabel Machado, until next time.